From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, a week of war in the Middle East. Following Hamas's attacks, Israel has cut off services, including water, to Gaza before an expected ground campaign. A medical student there says, You drink your water or you wash your face and brush your teeth. Brushing your teeth has become a luxury for us. Also, Ron Elvin on the week in politics and President Biden's support for Israel. In Congress, another week, still no speaker. Tortoises on the lam in Texas. Are they just trying to get to Oklahoma? And later, Justine Tree's new film about the fall of a father, the courtroom drama that follows, and a little boy. First, our newscast at Saturday, October 14, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Saudi Arabia today where he is urging allies to keep the war between Israel and Hamas contained. It's uh, vitally important and I know that our countries agree uh, that we uh, work together to make sure that to the best of our ability this conflict does not spread uh, to other places on Blinken. other fronts. Blinken met with his Saudi Arabian counterpart, saying the two countries are working together to ensure access to humanitarian aid. Fourteen Americans in Israel and Gaza unaccounted for, and some of them may now be hostages of Hamas. NPR's Laurel Wamsley spoke to families and friends of those waiting for word of their loved ones. Rachel Goldberg says the last she heard from her son, Hirsch Goldberg Polin, were two text messages last Saturday morning. The first one said, I love you. And the next one said, I'm sorry. Hirsch was at the music festival in Israel, where hundreds of young people were killed or taken hostage. The Hamas militants put Hirsch and two other young men in a pickup truck. And the police were able to tell us the last place that they saw Hirsch's cell phone was just at the border with Gaza. And that's the last we've heard of him. President Biden held a call Friday with family members of the Americans unaccounted for. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News. In Washington, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan has some work ahead of him. He is now the latest GOP nominee for House Speaker, but he does not appear to have enough support within his party to win the gavel. Sam Greenglass, member station WABE, reports from Atlanta. Hard right members like Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene torpedoed their party's first nominee, Steve Scalise, and have remained steadfast in their support for Jordan. But many mainstream Republicans won't vote for him. Austin Scott of Georgia put his name forward as a consensus choice. Here he is on CNN. There are people in there that are honorably trying to get to the right place, and then there are people in there that like to go on the TV and uh, are not necessarily negotiating for anything other than TV time. Makes us look like a bunch of idiots. Scott is a staunch conservative, but broke with those in his party who refused to certify the 2020 election. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. From 75,000 health care workers going back to work, Kaiser Permanente and its coalition of unions have reached a tentative agreement. Scott Massioni of member station WYPR reports. Workers and one of the largest health care providers in the nation seem to have come to terms. The deal gives a 21% across-the-board raise to employees and increases the minimum wage. Steve Shields is the lead for labor relations at Kaiser. We are committed to the mission and committed to caring for people in our communities. It is uh, a challenging environment in the U.S. in general for, for health care. We, we don't have enough health care workers. The unions have canceled their second strike, which was planned for next month, and workers will vote in the coming weeks on ratifying the agreement. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is standing with the local Jewish community as the war between Israel and and Hamas intensifies. The conflict also has inspired protests throughout Boston and beyond. Mayor Wu spoke at Temple Israel's Shabbat services last night. She said she feels the shock across the community at the number of lives cut short by violence in Israel. The city of Boston stands with you, grieves with you, and will take every action to ensure that our communities here are safe. WBUR will air a conversation with Temple Israel senior Rabbi Elaine Zecker at 9.35 this morning. A Concord family is calling for accountability from the town's public schools and police department after they say their son faced racist harassment at school. The Boston Globe says the 13-year-old boy reported three instances of abuse at Concord Middle School. The family has hired an attorney and reported the incidents to Concord Police. The family tells the Globe that the school says it has disciplined the students involved, but that the school won't say how. Electric vehicle chargers are being installed throughout the state for cars and trucks, but a new type has been installed in Marshfield, a charging station for aircraft is now set up at the Marshfield Municipal Airport. Eversource Vice President Tilak Savarmani says bringing enough power to the charging stations is the first step. The power we put in usually has the capacity to put a lot more. So once they have more demand, what they have to do at that point is really add the actual charging units. The power supply for that is already in place. This is the first public electric aircraft charging station in Massachusetts. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins host the Predators, and the Revs are in Nashville tonight. It's 50 degrees in Boston today and tomorrow. Some sunshine with highs in the low 60s. And looking ahead to Monday, a slight chance of showers and highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us today. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu says his country will, quote, crush and destroy the Hamas militants responsible for last week's attack on Israel. But previous Israeli military operations in Gaza have only inflicted temporary setbacks on the group. NPR's Greg Myrie, who's covered fighting in Gaza, joins us. Greg, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Let's begin with what what do we know about the situation in Gaza right now? Well, Israel is telling Palestinian civilians to move to the southern part of Gaza, warning that a, a major military operation will be coming soon in the north of Gaza, the territory closest to Israel communities. Now, thousands of these Palestinians are moving to the south, but many are remaining in their homes in the north. Uh, Israel is already conducting punishing airstrikes throughout Gaza, and large numbers of troops and armored vehicles are assembled just outside Gaza's border fence. We know that the Israeli military has a history of operating in Gaza. What should we keep in mind about these past incursions? 
So the Israeli troops and, and civilians pulled out of Gaza back in 2005 after being there nearly four decades. Since then, uh, Israeli forces have reentered the territory several times. The largest operation was 2014, and that lasted seven weeks. It was very bloody, and it dealt Hamas a major setback. But Hamas is rebuilt. And, you know, Scott, here we are just nine years later, and the group just unleashed its deadliest assault ever on Israel. So the question is really whether Israel can deliver a blow to permanently weaken or cripple Hamas and, and not just a temporary one. Let's say that Israel destroys and, and I don't want to use euphemisms, kills most Hamas militants and blows up their weapons. Would Hamas still remain the dominant force in Gaza? Well, certainly possible and maybe even likely. Hamas says it has a, a political wing and a military wing that operate independently. And Israel says all of Hamas is dedicated to destroying Israel. But these Israeli military operations that we've seen in the past have focused on the Hamas militants rather than the Hamas political leaders. Israel has effectively tolerated Hamas political leaders, hoping they'd focus on running the territory, providing basic services. But now Israel says it wants to destroy all of Hamas. And this is a major undertaking complicated by the fact that Hamas is believed to be holding about 150 hostages. Paul Salem, head of the Middle East Institute in Washington, said Israel may not be able to achieve its goals and at some point may have to accept some sort of continued Hamas presence in Gaza. Israel might feel, well, you know, we made them pay enough of a price. We've secured our border enough. Uh, uh, now let's get our people back. Let's negotiate new rules of the game. So there is a way to, to do this. But the moment is not now. If Hamas were to be removed from power, Greg, who who could take over in Gaza? You know, it's it's really not clear. Israel doesn't appear interested at this point in a full-fledged occupation with troops in Gaza for the long term. But there aren't uh, other obvious options. Again, Paul Salem. But somebody to come and step in and backstop an Israeli invasion after, you know, 10,000 Palestinians have been killed. Nobody's interested in doing that. This is really an Israeli-Palestinian problem. Nobody's going to step in and shoulder that burden. So even as Israel prepares for a military operation, it needs to figure out what comes afterward, and there's no clear answer. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks so much for being with us. Sure thing, Scott. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving joins us. Good morning, Ron. Good to be with you, Scott. We, of course, just heard the latest from Gaza. Um, Support for Israel remains strong in the White House. Are they looking at the possibility, how do they look at the possibility of the U.S. getting involved in another protracted involvement in the Middle East where history doesn't inspire? Not a good track record, not one for anyone, not for the U.S., not for the U.N., and not for any of the global powers over the last 75 years. From a policy standpoint, any White House has to admit it has little control over this situation. We've had more than a dozen presidents now who have tried, a couple with some success, Jimmy Carter. And yet, here we are again. From a political standpoint, all an American president can do is declare support for Israel and call for Israeli restraint. And that's what U.S. presidents have done. Former presidents, too, by the way, Scott, except former President Trump, who's been airing what seemed to be his personal grievances with the Israeli leadership. Uh, but the outcome is largely beyond U.S. control. 
America has some influence, but key decisions will be made by others. There are world events we cannot resolve. Sometimes such events have immediate consequences close to home, as is the case right now with immigration. Well, and that seems to be a rising concern, according to uh, a new Reuters-Ipsos poll, which shows that while the economy remains a top concern for U.S. voters, immigration policy is becoming increasingly important, and not just in border states. Uh, That's right. And the new urgency is not just in a poll. That's just one more wake-up call. Uh, People are being pushed out of their native countries by poverty or crime. Uh, They're being persuaded there's a better life for them in the U.S., It's already a million arrivals a year and rising. We've seen immigration surges throughout our history, of course. Some were absorbed more easily than others. And right now, our outdated laws and mechanisms have been overwhelmed by these numbers. And that is increasingly felt nationally. The big cities that have been most sympathetic, the sanctuary cities, have been targeted and brought to the breaking point, and they are asking for help and revisiting their own policies. Ron, let me put another question this way. What, what, in your infinite political wisdom, do you think will come first? Will the Cubs win another World Series or House Republicans elect a new speaker? <laughs> We're going to bet on the House this time, <laughs> Scott. Uh, they have a nominee, but not yet a speaker. And it appears their nominee, Jim Jordan of Ohio, uh, lacks the votes to become the speaker, which takes a majority of the whole House. Is Jordan close? Well, it's been reported he felt short by maybe 50 votes or so in a test ballot yesterday afternoon. So the House went home for the weekend. That gives Jordan and his allies, possibly including the former president, uh, some time to line up more support. We have only so much time, uh, even in a normal week. Uh, but I, there are questions that we're going to have to... Uh, all right. The new charges against Democratic Republican lawmakers. Uh, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey and uh, new charges against him and uh, George Santos, the Republican representative. You know, in a normal week, we would be talking about this. Uh, they were both already facing multiple charges. They were both hearing a chorus of demands for their resignation. Demands, by the way, Scott, coming primarily from their own party colleagues, their colleagues are unhappy about the bad press for the party and the possible loss of those seats in next year's election. Of course, that's the Republicans in the House and Democrats in the Senate. Uh, You know, you would think there would be a little bit more uh, team feeling, uh, but there's not a lot of sentiment about such things when the margin of majority is this narrow in both chambers, and it is historically narrow. The loss of the Menendez seat could cost the Democrats the Senate uh, if he were to run and lose next year, and he is running. And, of course, Santos would greatly narrow the Republican margin in which, the House if he were to be expelled. Which is already pretty narrow, isn't it, as we, as we learn in successive rounds of speakership elections. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Charles Feeney wore a $10 watch, took the bus and subway, flew coach, and lived for decades in a rented two-bedroom apartment with his wife. By the time he died this week at the age of 92, he had given away $8 billion. But there is no Charles Feeney Hall to enshrine his name on an ivied campus. There is no Charles Feeney wing of an acclaimed hospital or a Feeney planetarium. The New York Times says Mr. Feeney's philanthropic contributions funded more than a 1,000 buildings on five continents, yet his name doesn't appear on even one. Charles Feeney was accomplished, generous, 
and largely unknown to the general public. It's what he wanted. Charles Finney served in the U.S. Air Force, studied hotel management at Cornell, and then co-founded Nairport Business. They sold perfume, cigarettes, and liquor duty-free to U.S. servicemen coming home from overseas. The business grew. Charles Feeney became quite rich. He invested widely and wisely. But Charles Feeney also wanted something more. He'd grown up in an Irish Catholic family that struggled during the Depression. I had one idea, he said, that you should use your wealth to help people. Mr. Feeney eventually gave up his multiplicity of homes from New York to Honolulu to the Riviera, sold his limousines, and began to assiduously and anonymously donate nearly all his money. He helped support earthquake relief in Haiti, an Operation Smile, which provides surgeries for children around the world born with cleft lips and palates, AIDS relief in South Africa, public health programs in Vietnam, and hospitals and universities. He told Jim Dwyer of the New York Times he hoped putting no names on his gifts might prod others to give more. They could still get naming rights on great institutions. Mr. Fien had given away nearly all his fortune by 2020, and Forbes magazine noted he didn't wait to grant gifts after his death or set up a legacy fund that annually tosses pennies at a $10 problem. He hunted for causes where he can have a dramatic impact and went all in. Charles Finney gave money to several groups in Northern Ireland on both sides of the sectarian divide to help create the incentive for them to work out the Good Friday Agreement they finally signed in 1998. It holds to this day. Charles Finney's generosity enriched the lives of millions who will never know his name or how he helped. His life was truly rich. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8:18. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for continued coverage of developments in Israel and Gaza. Also, just ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll hear that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has confirmed that last month was the hottest September in 174 years. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. And Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential AI, announcing an AI event October 18th at Northeastern. Leading with AI, responsibly, explores innovative strategies companies like Google, Fidelity, and Intuit use to transform their business with AI. Tickets at ai.northeastern.edu. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is urging allies in the Middle East to keep the war between Israel and Hamas contained. Blinken was in Saudi Arabia today where he said the two countries are working together to ensure access to humanitarian aid for Palestinians in Gaza. House members are due back on Capitol Hill on Monday as they enter a third week without a speaker. Republicans have tapped Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan as their latest nominee, but he needs 217 votes on the House. 
House floor to secure the post. United Auto Workers members remain on picket lines as their strike against Detroit's big three automakers turns a month old this weekend. And union health care workers are returning to their jobs after reaching a tentative deal with Kaiser Permanente yesterday. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. After a summer of extreme heat around the world, the U.S. government says September was the hottest in its 174 years of climate records. Researchers say there is a clear link between this heat and human-caused climate change, as NPR's Julia Simon reports. It's not just that last month was the hottest September on record, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. It's how abnormally hot it was. It also beat out the previous record September by 0.83 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a pretty significant jump. That's NOAA climatologist Ellen Bartow-Gillies, the lead author of the report. She said another way to think about it, compared to the average July temperature from 2001 to 2010. September 2023 was actually warmer than that. There are two major factors driving this jump in average global temperatures. Bartow-Gillies says the big one is climate change, which is mostly caused by humans burning fossil fuels. And there's El Nino that periodically warms parts of the Pacific Ocean and affects weather patterns worldwide. What it boils down to is that these conditions magnify the existing warmth. As for what this hot September meant, Barto Gillies says this heat affected people all over the world, even in places in the southern hemisphere that were coming out of winter, not summer. The report found North America, South America, Europe, and Africa had their warmest Septembers on record. Antarctica also saw its warmest September, which contributed to record low sea ice. NOAA also found that ocean surface temperatures were really high. That warmer water helped fuel wetter, more intense storms from New York City to Libya, where dam failures caused thousands of deaths. Ultimately, these numbers shocked lots of people, even climate scientists. Jeez, these numbers. We sent the report to Bernadette Woods-Plackey, chief meteorologist at Climate Central, who wasn't involved in the research. She says it's yet another wake-up call. A report like this really screams the urgency for advancing our climate actions, doing it quicker and scaling it bigger. Woods-Plackey says some climate solutions that can help reduce planet-heating fossil fuels include shifting to renewable energy, electrifying transport, and changing how we manage land. Julia Simon, NPR News. Elena Kostruchenko is a great reporter who cannot do the work she loves in the country she cares for. She's covered the Russian military in Crimea and other parts of Ukraine, abandoned hospitals stifling bureaucrats in the aftermath of the storming of the school in Beslan in 2004, and finally the intrepid staff of her own lone newspaper, Novaya Gazeta, before it was forced to cease publication in Russia last year. She's written a memoir, I Love Russia, 
reporting from a lost country. Elena Kostyuchenko joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me here. Memoirs are invitations to look back. You grew up watching and reading a lot of Soviet and Russian state-run media. Why did you want to be a reporter? Well, I decided that I would be a reporter. Then I fortunately read uh, Anna Politkovskaya's article. Anna Politkovskaya is a great journalist of Nova Gazeta who's been murdered in 2006. I was 14. I was living in Yaroslavl, and I thought that I know what's happening in my country. But when I read her article about cleansing of Chechen village by Russian soldiers, I was shocked because what she wrote there is was completely out of the picture of what I had in my head. And then I went to library and started to read everything what she wrote. And I got even more shocked. It appeared that television lied to me, television lied to everyone, and everyone believes it. So I got very angry first at Nova Gazeta, who's published this article, because like I lost the common truth I had. But then I decided that I want to join them. So I did. Did you have fun as a reporter? Oh, yes, all the time. I really love my work. Uh, actually, still have uh, problems to believe that it's like paid work. We see different places, we meet different people, we try to understand the reality as deep as we can. You did a story once where you tried to help a widow recover the body of her husband, a Russian soldier who was killed in the battle for the Donetsk airport in 2014. Why was that so difficult? Yes, it was, because Russian authorities denied and keep denying that Russian soldiers did participate in Donbas war. So basically, the first truck with first bodies of dead Russian soldiers, when they, it was sent back to Russia, it like disappeared right mm -hmm. after crossing the border. And while I was looking for it, I met a woman, her name was Liana. She was looking for her husband who was sent to Donbass and then disappeared. And we started to look his body together. Finally, we found it's being kept in the morgue in the military base. But when we found it and they promised to give it to her, they said that she cannot open the coffin. And then they learned that I was helping her and they said that for communicating the, with me, they won't give her this body at all. What was it like to be LGBTQ in Russia? Uh, it's hard and it's getting harder and harder. Mm -hmm. Like when I became an LGBTQ activist, there was still a space, at least I believe there was still a space for communicating with the authorities. We were asking for rights out loud. We did some street actions and educative work. And then in uh, 2013, our parliament applied the new law. It's anti-gay propaganda law. Basically, this law says that we are socially unequal to the others. And I believe this is first clearly fascist formula what we had in our Russian legislation. I have to ask you about the important reporting you did 
after the siege of the school in Beslan, 2004. A horrifying story. A thousand hostages herded into a gymnasium rigged with explosives. More than 300 people died, most of them children. But what did you discover about the actions of the Russian forces? Well, it wasn't my discovery. It was the discovery of Novaya Gazeta, who started to work there since the very first day of hostage crisis. And what we discovered is that the main goal of the storm wasn't to save hostages. The main goal of the storm was to destroy terrorists. And they did. But the price was enormous. Mm-hmm. And actually... I believe that this was the turning point of Russian history because after that, Putin understood that he he can do whatever he wants. He can shoot at the school full of children and nothing gonna happen with him. Right after Beslan, Putin stopped playing democracy. You are outside of Russia now. Are you worried for your safety? Um... So I believe I have to, because I had some security issues when I was working in Ukraine. Uh, My colleague told me that Chechen military forces who were participating in fight for Mariupol had information on me and were expecting on me in the moment when I was about to take this road to Mariupol. And they expected for me not to arrest me, but to kill me. And... Like half a year after that, then I was in Germany and I fell sick and I had like very strange symptoms and uh, after two and half months of doctor's examination, what's happening with me is that I was poisoned. I cannot say I feel very much different in Europe than I felt in Russia because you always know that your work has risks and these risks can become reality one day. Elena Kostyuchenko, her memoir, I Love Russia. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. NPR continues to cover the war between Israel and Hamas and Israeli strikes on the Gaza Strip. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Ayesha, how Palestinians in the West Bank may view the conflict. Also learn more about the shadow war between Israel and Iran. Iran has been among Hamas's backers in the region, though it denies direct involvement in last week's attack on Israel. You can tune in for those conversations tomorrow. Listen live on your radio, your phone, or by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. And to see much more of NPR's coverage of the war between Israel and Hamas, you can go to npr.org slash Updates. So how fast can a determined tortoise go? Fast enough to make a quick getaway from their owners. We read this week in Texas Monthly that tortoise... Escapes are surprisingly frequent in that state in which the stars at night are big and bright. How and why? What's on the other side of that fence? Tickets to the Rangers-Astros game? We're joined now by Brenda Bush, Assistant Director of Central Texas Tortoise Rescue in Pflugerville, Texas. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Well, thank you. I love being here. So this sounds like law and order tortoiseville. I mean, how, how many of these escapes occur every week? I could not tell you how many escape every week because we don't get them all reported to us, but believe me, there's tons of them. These big African sulcatas, um, they are powerful little critters and they break out of their fencing and break out of their yards all the time. Where are they trying to get? Just to other grass. They're just wanderers by nature and so they're just wanting to explore and keep eating. Does anybody put like a, you know, a location chip in a tortoiseshell? They can, actually, just like you can on a dog's ear. They can put chips inside a tortoise's shell or inside their thigh. Otherwise, people will um, write with permanent marker a small area on their shell or affix a dog tag on their shell. What do you do when you get a call about a missing tortoise? A question, by the way, I never thought I would live long enough to ask in this job, but go ahead. <laughs> well, when we get a call that animal control or someone has found a big African sulcata wandering the streets. We help them find ways to try to find the owner, or if it's animal controlled, they also can just bring them to us at our rescue and we'll hold them and try to find the, the owner ourselves. When you get hold of them, what do they eat? How do you entertain them? They eat grass and hay. That's their primary source of food. They love spineless prickly pear cactus, so I regularly cultivate prickly pear cactus for them to eat. And we have to have a nice big water dish of some kind for them to drink from or sit in. And lots of space to walk around and graze, because that's what they do. They graze just like a cow. Yeah. I'm sure you get this question all the time. Is there any chance that when a tortoise escapes, they're just trying to find B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music? <laughs> I think when they escape, they're trying to find the, the greener grass on the other side, the uh, cactus on the other side, or a male or female that might potentially be out there somewhere. And so to prevent a tortoise from escaping, you, what, just a very strong fence? Right. Very, very secure fencing because they are very strong critters. We we call them little bulldozers all the time. In the wild, they wander for miles. And in captivity, we are, our rescue, Central Texas Tortoise Rescue, recommends approximately 6,000 square feet per sulcata. So that's a lot of space for one critter. But you have to remember they're grazers. So they've got to have it just like a cow would need acres to eat. Are they good company? They're interesting. They're fun to watch. They do like to be around people. My personal sulcata that's out in my yard will follow me around when I'm doing yard work out there. He watches for me. They're fun to have around. They're neat. But when you get a sulcata, an African spurthite tortoise, they get very large. And they are honestly a pet that you've really got to prepare yourself for, be ready for, and have the right environment for. Otherwise, you will have an escapee. Mm. Brenda Bush is assistant director of the Central Texas Tortoise Rescue. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope you're able to keep all of your tortoises where they're most happy. Oh, we will. We've got cinder block walls and nice secure enclosures. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR, NPR News. Political scandals come in all shapes and sizes for Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That shape may be a $19,000 lectern. That price tag has raised some serious questions from state lawmakers of both parties. Matthew Moore with KUAF in Fayetteville, Arkansas, brings us this report. 
In early September, Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders called a special session of the state legislature. The Senate will be called to order. Senate Bill Sanders was pushing hard to restrict what public records would be available under the state's Freedom of Information Act, including her own travel expenses. This whole thing has started from and keeps growing from the governor's failure to be transparent about just spending in general. That's Matt Campbell. He's an attorney and blogger in Little Rock. He says when Sanders announced this session, he started posting some of the receipts he had FOIA requested earlier in the year. I was just scrolling through those credit card receipts, and I stumbled across that Beckett Events purchase for 19000 and change, and I didn't even know what it was. Eventually, he learned through another request that it was for a lectern. And I thought, that sounds insane as a price for a podium. To be clear, a podium is an object you stand on, and a lectern is an object you stand behind. And according to the invoice, this lectern was custom. 39 inches tall, wood with blue accents, plus a custom traveling case. Cost just over 19 grand. Beckett Events, the company who sent the invoice, is operated by Virginia Beckett, a former colleague of Sanders back when Sanders worked as press secretary for former President Donald Trump. Campbell's post raised a lot of questions, so much so that by late September, the governor's office invited the media to come and see the lectern. But the photos taken by the media didn't look like the lectern listed on the invoice. And it didn't match the price point either. The lectern that was allegedly ordered typically costs around $7,500. There's also no shipping records, something that reporters have asked for. At first, the governor's office said it was a simple accounting error. But according to Campbell, We've got months of emails back and forth between the governor's office and other state agencies where it's just a discussion about how they're going to use state funds to pay for this. Last week, Sanders said the hoopla is because of left-wing activists. You know, people want to manufacture a controversy where there isn't one. The state Republican Party did write a check to cover the purchase, but that came only after Campbell requested a copy of the invoice. Records also indicate the state agency in charge of purchasing essentially told the governor's office that this wouldn't be reimbursable. Campbell says that despite the many political allies Sanders has in Arkansas, this doesn't seem to be going away. The governor has managed to find like the one issue that somehow seems to transcend party politics in this state. A prime example, Tom Mars. He's an attorney who used to run the state police under former Republican Governor Mike Huckabee, father of the current governor. In the 37 years I've been a lawyer, I have never in my career seen so many red flags, so much evidence suggesting that this is much more of an overpriced lecture. A Republican state senator requested the Legislative Audit Office, which is nonpartisan, investigate the purchase. Mars represents a whistleblower who was offered to speak with that office. The person I represent had direct personal firsthand knowledge of a cover-up. It's not entirely clear what could be covered up, but it's not just folks like Campbell who want to know. An all-Republican committee just voted to move forward with an audit that will be completed by the end of the year. For NPR News, I'm Matthew Moore in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is among the House Democratic leaders denouncing Republicans for nominating Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan for Speaker. Clark, the House Minority Whip, says the GOP has a choice, bipartisanship or 
doubling down on extremism that's ground Congress to a halt. She accuses Jordan of placing a higher priority on division and hate than on the American people. And she says every Republican who votes for Jordan is siding with an insurrectionist against democracy. On the MBTA, a partial shutdown of the red line has begun. Ashmont branch trains and Mattapan line trolleys are not in service as of today. They're replaced by free accessible shuttle buses through Sunday, October 29th. The scheduled closure allows crews to perform track work and reduce speed restrictions. It's 51 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today. Highs in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. And Moonbox Productions with Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Wrongfully imprisoned, Sweeney Todd returns to London to seek revenge and save his daughter, aided by his meat pie-baking neighbor, Mrs. Lovett, now playing at the new Arrow Street Arts Performance Venue. Tickets at arrowstarts.org. It's been a week since Hamas militants attacked Israel, killing more than a thousand. Israel has been striking Gaza ever since, and the violence has intensified. The Gaza Strip, the 2.3 million people, are now under total siege by Israel. The latest from the Middle East as fighting enters its second week. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Brown Books for Young Readers, publisher of Zillit and Other Important Rhymes, written by Bob Odenkirk and illustrated by his daughter, Erin Odenkirk, a book of poems and nonsense for all ages. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The Gaza Strip is without electricity. Hospitals are running out of fuel for generators. Half of Gaza's population has been told to evacuate their homes by Israel. Israel's siege of Gaza follows last weekend's cross-border raid by Hamas militants that killed more than 1,300 Israelis. Since then, some 2,200 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Israel says it is targeting Hamas. NPR's Aya Betraoui is in Jerusalem. Aya, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. What can you hear from people inside of Gaza now? Well, after the evacuation orders were issued, hundreds of thousands of people left their homes to go south. Our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, who also had to leave with his family, saw huge crowds of people and families from areas in the north trying to reach Gaza City by foot. He saw mothers carrying their babies, fathers walking with kids on their back, and young children walking for miles. And this was only in Gaza City where he saw this, still 22 miles from the main southern town of Rafah. I also heard from a doctor, Hossam Abu Safia. He says in his hospital in northern Gaza, doctors don't have time to evacuate. There are people on life support. They're busy triaging a steady stream of wounded and dead from continuous Israeli airstrikes. And the Palestinian Ministry of Health says a third of those killed in Palestinian territories in Gaza are children. I also reached medical student Tasneem Ahab. Her home was destroyed this week, bombed, and now her family is being displaced again. 
but they don't have anywhere to go and they're worried because dozens were trying to flee yesterday, were killed by airstrikes in their cars. And the family's now running out of water. There's been no water or food entering Gaza for five days. You drink your water or you wash your face and brush your teeth. Brushing your teeth has become a luxury for us. You feel like your mouth, it's like a desert, need um, a little bit of water just to make your mouth. I don't know how to describe this because I'm very thirsty now. Yeah, Prime Minister Netanyahu gave a televised address last night saying this is only the beginning of Israel's war to destroy Hamas. You've been in Israel this past week. What, is, what has it been like there? Well, there's a lot of pain and anguish. Everyone here seems to be affected by the attacks in some way. Families are grieving, and there is still shock over how this happened. And there are some 300,000 Israelis on reserve duty who were called to the border for a possible ground invasion. So a lot of people are impacted. But Israelis do have diverse views. Many want to see Gaza wiped out, and others say that's not going to help. But I had a chance to take a moment to reflect on the wider historical context of this conflict with someone who's done a lot of reading and thinking about this, Mahmoud Muna's family, who are Palestinian, own the educational bookshop. It's this uh, little store nestled inside of a century-old complex in Jerusalem that was actually once home to the Ottomans. And this ancient city, of course, is also home to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, ground that is sacred to Muslims and Jews. So we spoke, surrounded by hundreds of books written by Israelis, Palestinians, people from all over the world. So I'm seeing titles like The One State Condition. I'm seeing a lot of books by Noam Chomsky. I'm seeing books titled Arafat's War, Palestine, Matters of Truth and Justice, Divided Jerusalem, Records of Dispossession. I mean, and even a book on anti-Semitism. That's the title on anti-Semitism. These shelves really tell um, just how much has been said already. And yet still, here we are, after all these words. I think that the most tragic about this conflict is actually that it encapsulates everything we have seen in the last 75 years in a week. We're seeing Jewish trauma and we're seeing Palestinian trauma as being the price for that. We're seeing Palestinians suffering. We're seeing Palestinian refugees being made again. We're seeing the issue of 67, the issues of 48. We're seeing anti-Semitism. We're seeing media control. We're seeing wars on narrative. We're seeing American imperialism and we're seeing the support of the West to, to the Israel. Every element of the Palestine-Israeli conflict over the last 75 years is suddenly interplaying in this conflict. Uh, that we're living today. And being here in Jerusalem, the, I want to call it ground zero for the fight for identity, history, territorial claims. What's the significance of this city at this time? The Palestine-Israeli conflict is always has been about people and land together. People are the refugees, and the land is the most important one is Jerusalem. So, and again, we're seeing both of them is inter kind of interconnected uh, in one way now. And we're seeing the war over the land, particularly in Jerusalem and the areas around. And just stepping back for a second from Jerusalem and just looking at like from the sky, really high up, what do you make of all of this? I don't know. It's it's a difficult call. In one way, it's looking at this from the above. It looks like a, it's not like a circle. It's more like a spiral, I think. And I'm trying to see where the center of this uh, spiral is. 
in one way we have seen all of this before, but in one way we have not, or at least the scale of it is is bigger and huge. That trauma and the disastrous effect of it, and the loss of 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 life is bigger. Can can I ask you how many books you've read? I don't exactly know, but um, I have read a lot, maybe 600, 700 from the books that I sell, I actually have read. I'm looking forward for the day that where I don't have to sell books about the conflict and I start selling Fifty Shades of Grey and trashy books because I think also people deserve their moments where they don't have to be so serious and they don't have to be so intellectual and they can just escape into fun read or sensational read. And uh, But unfortunately, it seems like I'm still in the business for some time. I were speaking there with uh, Mahmoud Buna, a Palestinian bookseller in Jerusalem. What, what do you hear there in Israel about how this round of conflict might end? Well, Israel's government says it ends with Hamas destroyed, disarmed, and unable to govern. Now, how that happens and what that looks like is unclear. But um, one thing everyone seems to acknowledge is that this is going to take time. Things have changed, and many more people will die. And Perzea Petraui in Jerusalem, thank you. Thank you, Scott. The new French film, Anatomy of a Fall, is a whodunit. Now, looking for a stranger who walks in, kills him while you were sleeping right above, and Daniel was up for a walk is a strategy. Samuel had no enemies. That stop, make... stop. I did not kill him. That's not the point. Or did anybody do it? Was it an accident, a decision driven by despair? young boy, Daniel, who is unsighted, finds his father, Samuel, dead outside of their house in the Alps. His mother, Sandra, is arrested and accused in court as the author of the crime. Anatomy of a Fall is the latest film from Justine Tria, who won the Palme d'Or Award. It stars Sandra Huller in a performance that's won wide acclaim as a writer who is the widow of an aspiring writer and the mother of the young boy who's discovered his father. Justine Trier joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks to you to invite me. And uh, you're joined by your uh, interpreter, Asia Zopperman. Thank you also for being with us. Hi. This is a heartbreaking and absorbing film. Tell us about the family of three at the center. Um, it's a family that faces the challenge every day of having the two parents of this young boy, Daniel, who are trying to exercise the same craft and who have the same desire to be a writer, the same ambitions. Um, and in trying to negotiate their relationship, they're traversed by the commitment to the idea of reciprocity that they're struggling to enact. And there's this frustration of the father um, in front of this woman who is a successful writer, more successful than he is. And so I think that they've gone through um, successive crises and that where we pick up the movie, where we begin, is in this place where they are in their relationship, have this form of um, a sort of a limping relationship from the attempt to find balance. Yeah. There's tension between the parents. And does Samuel feel guilt over Daniel's injury? 
Oui, je pense qu'il a de la culpabilité. Je pense que aussi euh, Sandra lui en a voulu aussi pour ça. Yes, and I think that um, Sandra also held it against him for a while. I think every couple and every relationship has their burden to bear, and that theirs is a particularly violent uh, burden of this accident that happened to this child. Um, and then underwritten in the film is the fact that this accident happened when the father didn't show up to go and pick up the child because he was suddenly inspired to write. So there's this dangerous idea that one's creative ambition can somehow damage or hurt the child. Um, so I think he has a, a strong uh, culpability, strong guilt um, that she may also have held against him at some point. Yeah. There is tension at some point between um, Samuel and Sandra over who really wrote what. And I, of course, must point out you and your husband. Uh, Arthur Harari often worked together on screenplays. <laughs> Do you ever have these discussions? Um, we are not married, <laughs> first of all. But uh, je pense que non, on a... On a... No, I think uh, we're so very aware um, of how much um, one always is stealing from one's environment, um, that I think we've overcome the question of intellectual property in this way. Um, you know, it, we're so surrounded by so many people who are constantly recording and reappropriating the things that surrounds them. It can be a theft or it can be an homage. Um, it, it, um, it depends on how it's done, of course. I'm not speaking about the cases where there's a, a clear attempt to mimic or imitate somebody's voice. Um, that's, that's a different story. But otherwise, I think it's a form of art of appropriation where we're sponges in this way. And we should say that Arthur is a director in his own right. And recently I looked over his shoulder and saw him write something that came directly from a, a family story of mine with my mother and my father. I can't quite remember, but, but it, it made me smile in this way. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I think when somebody tries to um, actually steal the body of work of somebody else. It's a different story, and thankfully we haven't had anything like that between us. I want to ask you about the performance of Sandra Hula, great German actress as the mother, suddenly a widow and accused killer. I've read she wanted to do her lines in French, but you wanted something else. Could you explain that? Il a lu qu'elle qu voulait le faire en français. So to the point of language, um, so Sandra, of course, had to learn French, um, and and what this means for the character in the attempt at the mastery of French, of course, is to be seen as somebody who is generous and somebody who is going toward others, um, and who is trying to integrate um, uh, with with the environment she's in. But then beyond that was um, the stakes of of the moments where she would be overcome, um, and and where in the failure of should be overcome um, by her emotions and where the failure of this mastery would make her reach for English um, um, as, a, as, a, as a place to, to, to fall back on. And so one thing that is a, an important device in the film is the way in which we go between one, one language and the other. And then in terms of her performance uh, more generally, Sandra, somebody who has taught me a lot about um, presence in performance and, and I was somebody who was um, sort of uh, uninterested and kind of maybe uh, a slightly older ideas of, of a certain kind of performativity and theatricality. Um, um, as a spectator, when I watch a film, I want to meet uh, 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 somebody who seems to, to, to be living something and who is speaking to me so intimately that it seems to go beyond intentionality or their intention to communicate. The courtroom scenes are gripping. 
What's the challenge of getting so many people, different characters, to register different reactions to what they hear at the same time? Um, <laughs> I think it's the most complicated part of my job when there is so much people like this. Je pense que c'est vraiment l'un des trucs les plus compliqués, évidemment, en fait, quand il y a... Je pense que c'est l'une des parties les plus difficiles de mon travail, parce qu'on n'est jamais préparé assez, et on n'est jamais facile assez, et bien sûr, sur un set, le temps est relié à l'argent, et il n'y a pas suffisamment de ça, non plus. Et paradoxalement, je pense que, comme ma carrière se passe, ce que je trouve que je suis le plus excité dans les quatre films que j'ai faits, c'est un risque et un challenge que j'ai toujours sort of rise up to, and a, place of danger for me that I that I look forward to and recreate um, more. In my first film, of course, it was um, all the more because there was 10,000 people in the streets. But um, in this case, also you have the actors and the extras and there's just too many people that you can't control everything. And so, yes, one might imagine, you know, you have to speak to every single individual that's there. But I, I don't think that this that the direction um, only comes through a kind of explanatory um, or an explanation um, um, to the actors. I think it's my job to set an atmosphere that is quite particular. And a lot of people would maybe think that this atmosphere should be an atmosphere of tension. But um, on the contrary, I I think that were I to set a kind of tensed atmosphere, that's when it, the image would become a little frozen or a little bit like a telenovela kind of um, uh, 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 concentration. Whereas I'm looking for something um, a little bit more chaotic than that. And I work with uh, uh, fatigue and I work with uh, waiting and I work with hunger and I'm looking for a place where people are maybe a little bit less focused. And in that moment, it's my job to come in and discreetly steal a shot, um, sometimes um, from moments where the people don't even know that we're filming. When you make a film like this, do the, does the family at the center of it stay with you for a while? Oui, tellement. Uh, yes, so much. And uh, when it's uh, a beautiful, when it's beautiful, it's great. And uh, when it's not, it's infernal. Um, uh, we have to live with the monsters we create. And I've been living with these people for three years, and I think I'll probably live with them for at least another year. And I think that when one starts uh, as a filmmaker, it's not something that we necessarily um, conceive of. Um, the way that one's obsessions and fears and anxieties um, need to speak directly to things that are in our core. That concern us uh, and interpolate us directly, um, because then we're going to have to live with them. We're going to have to live with what we put out. Justine Tria, your new film, Anatomy of a Fall, has opened here in the United States. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank to you to invite me. And our thanks also to Asia Zaberman for her interpreting. Yes, thank you, Asia. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 51 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wheeler School for students in nursery through grade 12. Discover where your curiosity can take you at Wheeler. October 21st, open house, wheelerschool.org. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor John Goodman explains how he can play both lovable heroes and absolute lunatics. If you're cuddly and adorable, there's got to be a reason why, and it's usually filthy. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for more secrets from the Actors Studio, plus conversations with journalists Bob Woodruff, Jenny Slate, and Stuart Copeland. That's this week's News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from Israel and Gaza. This ground invasion seems imminent, and the whereabouts of Hamas's hostages are still unknown. Former diplomat Richard Haas says U.S. policymakers had overlooked Gaza and Hamas. The entire approach to diplomacy in recent years has been what you might describe as from the outside in, normalized between Israel and Arab states. And later, an official of the U.N. Relief and Works Agency on his concern for their employees. Baseball's playoffs, and why are the season's best teams the first to go out? And four decades of a show that celebrates organ music, only on public radio. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, October 14, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. As Israel prepares for a potential ground offensive in the Gaza Strip, military spokesman Jonathan Conriquez says Israeli reserve soldiers are in formation around Gaza and are preparing for the next stage of Israel's response a week after Hamas's deadly attack. As I've said before, our aim is very clear. The end state of this war is that we will dismantle Hamas and its military capabilities and fundamentally change the situation so that Hamas never again has the ability to inflict any damage on Israeli civilians or soldiers. NPR's Greg Myrie has covered the conflict for years. He has more on the Israeli-ordered evacuation of northern Gaza. Israel is telling Palestinian civilians to move to the southern part of Gaza, warning that a, a major military operation will be coming soon in the north of Gaza, the territory closest to Israel communities. Now, thousands of these Palestinians are moving to the south, but many are remaining in their homes in the north. 
Uh, Israel is already conducting punishing airstrikes throughout Gaza, and large numbers of troops and armored vehicles are assembled just outside Gaza's border fence. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is headed to Israel this weekend. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports on his trip as the U.S. is considering how best to help the country. Schumer is slated to lead a bipartisan group of senators over the weekend in what his office called an effort to show U.S. support for Israel. While in Israel, Schumer will meet with Israel's new unity government, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, as well as President Isaac Herzog. Schumer will discuss what resources the United States can provide Israel in its war against Hamas, according to his spokesperson. The U.S. is currently limited in its ability to help any efforts in the Middle East due to the lack of a House speaker. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin have also visited Israel in recent days. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News. To Texas, where a federal court has struck down Galveston County's redistricting plan. From Houston Public Media, Andrew Schneider reports on the latest in a string of rulings upholding a key part of the Voting Rights Act. Judge Jeffrey V. Brown ruled Galveston County violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act by redistricting to deny black and Latino voters an equal opportunity to choose their representative to the county's commissioner's court. The Voting Rights Act prohibits that kind of conduct. Attorney Chad Dunn represents current and former office holders who challenged the map. And the county uh, seemed to wager that it didn't apply to them. And so a United States district judge has made it clear the Voting Rights Act is alive and strong. The ruling comes on the heels of a pair of Supreme Court rulings upholding the act related to redistricting in Alabama. Galveston County now has a week to redraw its map. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Senator Ed Markey says he is deeply concerned about Massachusetts residents trapped in Israel and Gaza as the violence there intensifies. He said on social media that he will do everything in his power to support their safe return home. His post, in part, refers to a Medway family who'd traveled to visit relatives in the Gaza Strip and are now stuck there. The city of Chelsea is commemorating 50 years since the Chelsea fire broke out. The fire on October 14, 1973, burned 18 city blocks and destroyed more than 300 buildings. People are gathering today at the Chelsea Station restaurant, a former firehouse. People who fought the fire and lived through the fire will share their memories. The city's website says the event will include a multimedia gallery and memorabilia from the fire. A solar eclipse takes place this morning, but to see it in full, you need to be in the southwest U.S. Here in New England, only about 15 percent of the sun will be blocked by the moon. The solar eclipse is prompting a look ahead to next April when the total eclipse will be seen in Vermont, New Hampshire and Maine. Many businesses hope that will be helpful during what's normally a slow part of the year. Ruby Berryman and her husband bought and fixed up a motel in Lancaster, New Hampshire during the early pandemic years. We've managed to get through those, and I think that this will be a, a nice economic boost, um, having come out of that in a pretty poor winter. She plans to offer all-inclusive eclipse packages with locally catered food. Today is the first day of Boston Veg Fest. It will feature plant-based foods and other products, speakers and chefs, and educational exhibits. The free event kicks off at the Reggie Lewis Athletic Center at 10 this morning. In Boston tonight, the Bruins face the Predators. The Revs are in Nashville tonight. 
It is 51 degrees in Boston today and tomorrow. Some sunshine and highs in the low 60s. Monday, a slight chance of showers and temperatures in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. The Israeli military staged limited raids into Gaza overnight and continued its campaign of airstrikes. There are concerns the violence will soon escalate. Palestinians are scrambling to flee northern Gaza after Israel ordered them to leave. NPR's Peter Kenyon joins us now from Jerusalem. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Scott. This was not the full incursion into Gaza, that has been expected, but what more can you tell us about these raids? Well, according to IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari, the army carried out the raids and retrieved the bodies of several Israelis who had been missing since the Hamas attack a week ago. He said families had been notified. Hagari also said the troops found items, unspecified items, that might lead to the whereabouts of more missing Israelis. Now, separately, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, the IDF international spokesperson, told reporters that Israeli forces are, quote, seeing things no one should ever have to see. He said, quote, this is the face of evil, and he said Israel's main targets would be the leaders of Hamas militants in Gaza. He said, however long it takes, Israel will get those responsible for the slaughter of Israeli civilians. Gaza woke up to the news Friday that Israel has ordered Palestinians to evacuate northern Gaza and head south. Where does that stand? Well, yes, this was a controversial decision uh, issued to more than a million residents of northern Gaza. Uh, The United Nations said it could lead to a calamitous situation and called on Israel to rescind the order. But we are now getting reports of Palestinians on the roads heading south. Israel called it a significant movement. Uh, There have also been reports of some evacuating Palestinians feeling the road wasn't safe and trying to turn around to go home. Israel has since announced that it will allow safe passage, it says, on two main roads heading south from the northern Gaza Strip each day between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. The U.S. has promised to do whatever is necessary to ensure Israel can defend itself, and the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was in Israel yesterday. What did he say? Well, Austin said as a former CENTCOM commander, Hamas reminds him of ISIS. Bloodthirsty, fanatical, and hateful were his words. Uh, He added that like ISIS, Hamas has nothing to offer but, quote, zealotry, bigotry, and death. Now, he also referred to President Joe Biden's comment to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that while the U.S. would also respond swiftly and decisively to any such massive terrorist assault, democracies such as ours are stronger and more secure, quote, when we uphold the laws of war. Here's how he put it. Terrorists like Hamas deliberately target civilians, but democracies don't. This is a time for resolve and not revenge, for purpose and not panic, and for security and not surrender. Now, some critics have said Israel's bombardment of Gaza has already killed too many civilians. Austin did not say that. He did say the U.S. has sent warships and other assets to the region and is prepared to deal with anyone seeking to take advantage of the situation. And on another more positive front, the State Department says it expects the Rafah crossing in southern Gaza across to Egypt to be open for some five to six hundred Americans for several hours a day. Hamas, of course, would have to allow people to leave. What's the sentiment among Israelis there? 
Well, strong support for the Israeli military, tremendous sympathy for the families of those killed by Hamas. The Israeli Defense Minister, Yoav Gallant, said more than once yesterday that they weren't just killed or kidnapped. He alleged that rapes were committed and Israelis, including children and babies, were burned. Uh, but there's also increasingly sharp criticism being leveled here, not just at the military and intelligence agencies for not having anticipated this assault, but at Israel's political leaders, especially Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. One analysis piece ran under the headline, quote, Netanyahu is on brand, no responsibility, no accountability, no remorse. It charged Netanyahu with forming a temporary war cabinet as a means of, quote, making sure there's someone else to blame for the Gaza war failures. So the political impacts of this within Israel will likely be felt for some time. And here's Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. The events unfolding in Gaza and Israel and the wider region present an enormous challenge for U.S. diplomacy. Richard Haas is a veteran diplomat who's worked for both Democratic and Republican administrations and, of course, is also President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. He joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Good to be back with you. Was U.S. foreign policy so intent on Israel normalizing relations with some Arab states that it, it overlooked Palestinians? In a word, yes. The entire approach to diplomacy in recent years has been what you might describe as from the outside in, normalized between Israel and Arab states. It's understandable why that was uh, desirable, given the power of states, given that they're less difficult to work with as negotiating partners, and it made real progress. The problem is that it somehow was built upon this assumption that it could go on forever. Most recently, the idea was to bring Saudi Arabia in. And what I think events of the last week or so have shown in all their horrific detail is that the Palestinian dimension remains necessary because indeed I worry not only the damage that it could bring without it, but also that it could potentially pose problems even to the relationships between Israel and Arab states. A couple of questions of the moment. How does the Biden administration support Israel while at the same time urging restraint and safeguarding civilians in Gaza. Publicly, the president gave a very powerful voice to support, but privately, I would argue, the administration has to urge Israel to act smart. Just because you can do certain things doesn't mean it's in your or anybody's self-interest. And the danger in acting, if you will, wholesale with a large military intervention in Gaza, it will cause, as you suggest, all sorts of civilian casualties that'll lead to pressures for a ceasefire. Israel will risk losing the, the high ground. It could also lead to a widening of the war, which is neither in Israel nor in the United States' interest. And also, it, it doesn't solve Israel's problems. Uh, this is a very difficult terrain, given the density of population, the built-up urban areas. It's not obvious to me how this plays to the advantage of Israel's military. And as Israel learned after 2005, you can go in, you can stay, but when you leave, you create a vacuum. And that could happen again. They, Israel could hurt Hamas, leave, and once again, Hamas or something essentially like it could fill that vacuum. You mentioned the prospect of a widening war. How concerned are you about other countries in the region getting involved? My biggest concern is not so much countries uh, as it is Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed uh, militia in Lebanon. Hamas shot several thousand so-called rockets at Israel, causing significant damage. Hezbollah has in its inventory on the order of 150,000 rockets that have greater range, could reach Tel Aviv. 
So yeah, that's what worries me more than anything else, that, the, that Hezbollah would come into the war. So I think one of the principal goals of American foreign policy at this point needs to be working through Iran, which is Hezbollah's principal patron, to see that that does not happen. How does the United States work through Iran? I think we would have to signal Iran that they would be held accountable for anything that Hezbollah does. Hezbollah is not, a, shall we say, a, a, an independent actor. And Iran would have to know that the price it would pay potentially in its oil exports or in certain, you know, putting some of its military assets at risk, that, that would be significant. Again, uh, sometimes in order to prevent a wider war, you may have to threaten a wider war, but I'm afraid that's where we are. And finally, a question, and I, I know somebody who has a compelling answer for this, there's a Nobel Peace Prize in their future. Uh, is there a diplomatic path to break this treadmill of recurring violence between Israelis and Palestinians? There is, not with Hamas. I believe Hamas has ruled itself out for all time as a partner. But at the end of the day, Scott, there's still no substitute for an Israeli-Palestinian negotiation leading to some type of an outcome that includes a Palestinian state. It's in Israel's interest if Israel wants to remain a Jewish, democratic, secure, prosperous entity. Israelis should almost think of this as a favor not to Palestinians, but to themselves. But you need a partner to do it. And that would take time to encourage the emergence of a responsible Palestinian partner. One way you do that, though, is for Israel and the United States to begin to describe publicly their concept of what a Palestinian state would be. What we want to do is give reasonable Palestinians some hope that if they were to rule out all violence, if they were to be prepared to compromise, there would be something in it for them that would be far greater than the misery that will come from Hamas. Would that require some change in Israel's part as well? Absolutely. It would require a change in Israel's government. The government that Bibi Netanyahu cobbled together is not a government to, uh, to negotiate peace. It would take a new appreciation on the part of Israel that it would have to be prepared to curtail the uh, expansion and growth of settlements. It would have to be prepared to make territorial compromise. Palestinians would obviously have to rule out the use of uh, force, rule out any terrorism, also be prepared to compromise. And my guess is the United States and several of the Arab governments, including Saudi Arabia, would have to be party to this process. Indeed, it might be that the Saudis and others would link normalization to Israel with significant progress in this area. Again, history teaches us not to be uh, overly optimistic, to say the least, but I don't think it's a fool's errand. To the contrary, I think it's a necessary errand. Richard Haas, President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Break out those special glasses. A partial solar eclipse occurs today across the U.S. Partial, meaning the moon will not totally block the sun, so only the edges will be visible, so it will look like a ring of fire. Learn more about this partial solar eclipse later today on All Things Considered. You can listen live on your radio, your phone, or by asking your smart speaker to play Johnny Cash. Wait, no, I mean NPR by name. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. The taste of love is sweet When hearts 
like ours meet. Oh, that's a voice. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in about 15 minutes, our conversation with Elaine Zucker, the senior rabbi at Temple Israel, Boston. You'll get that and more ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Brown University, offering a portfolio of online, evidence-based mindfulness programs for all. Learn more at professional.brown.edu. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The State Department says it's working with Egypt and Israel to open the Rafah border crossing to allow foreigners living in Gaza to escape the fighting there. A senior official says the U.S. has been in touch with up to 600 Palestinian Americans, but it remains unclear how many want to leave. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan has his work cut out for him. Republicans have chosen him as their latest House Speaker nominee, but it's unclear if he has enough support in the full House to win the post. And expect a partial solar eclipse to sweep across the Western Hemisphere today. It's known as a ring of fire eclipse and will begin over Oregon late this morning following a narrow path to Texas and ending in Brazil this afternoon. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. House Republicans have a new nominee for the next speaker, Jim Jordan, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Here is a highly condensed recap of the past week. Jordan initially lost the race for speaker against Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise. Then Scalise dropped out after realizing he couldn't get the votes needed to be elected by the full House of Representatives. And that is now Mr. Jordan's challenge, given his party's internal divisions. It's unclear if he can win over his colleagues who voted for somebody else. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives is frozen and can't vote on anything without a speaker. NPR's congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us. Deirdre, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. So let me try and understand this. Jim Jordan won a majority of the votes to get the nomination. How much work does he have to do to get enough more votes to become speaker? He has a lot of work to do. I mean, he beat out Georgia Republican Austin Scott by about 40 votes in the internal Republican vote. But Scott only decided to run hours before yesterday's election. He didn't even really campaign. Jordan is a known quantity, and many expected he would have had a much larger vote. Even some of his supporters admitted they thought he would do better. 
He won 124 votes to Scott's 81. Jordan still doesn't have the broad support he needs of all the Republican factions. Remember, the House Republicans have a razor-thin majority. If all 221 Republicans show up on the House floor and vote, Jordan can only lose four. So House Republicans went home for the weekend. They're going to regroup on Monday. The House isn't back in session until Monday night, so it's unclear how soon the House is going to vote on a new speaker. And how will that work uh, when it actually gets to the chamber? I, I mean, January took 15 rounds of voting to elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker for however briefly he served. <laughs> right. Most House Republicans really want to avoid that. After they nominated Jordan, there was another vote on whether House Republicans were ready to vote for him on the floor. He got 155 votes on that ballot, but that's more than 60 short of the 217 he needs to get the gavel. House Democrats are all expected to vote against him. Some Jordan allies think he can win more support on the floor because former President Trump endorsed him, and they see that floor vote as a test of loyalty to Trump. Kentucky Republican Tom Massey is a supporter of Jordan's, he says he's really popular with the Republican base, and says there's going to be a lot of pressure on House Republicans to get in line when they do a roll call vote. And so when you have to stand up in front of God and country and say a name, your constituents are hoping you're going to say Jim Jordan. Deidre, tell us more about Jim Jordan. We, we think of him as the guy who doesn't wear a jacket. <laughs> right. He still doesn't wear a jacket. He's a conservative firebrand. He's been in the House for about 15 years, and he really was a political outsider at the beginning of his career. He had a reputation as a thorn in the side of top House Republican leaders. He ran a fiscal group of conservatives called the Republican Study Committee. When that group wasn't conservative enough, he founded the House Freedom Caucus. He had many public battles with his former Ohio colleague, who was then Speaker of the House at the time, John Boehner, and Boehner dubbed Jordan a legislative terrorist. He did become eventually close to House leadership under then-House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That just shows how much the Republican Party has shifted in just a few years. McCarthy used to complain about Jordan, but yesterday he was campaigning for him to take his place. Jordan has been leading the impeachment inquiry against President Biden. He voted against the certification of the 2020 election results. You know, right after he won the nomination, Democrats held a press conference and warned if he's elected, he's a threat to democracy. And Pierce Deirdre Walsh, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. It's a fraught world, but now it's time for sports. Baseball playoffs, good teams. Goodbye. Is the postseason broken? Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. So we're going to talk about the championship series in a minute, but i got to begin with who's out. The Atlanta Braves, Baltimore Royals, L.A. Dodgers, and Tampa Bay Rays had the best regular season records, all of them now eliminated. Many fans, I seem to be palpably, and I just don't mean in Los Angeles and Atlanta, are uh, outraged over this new playoff format, which expanded the number of teams to make the postseason. What do you feel? I think it's a disaster, and I think baseball knows it's a disaster, and I don't think they know what quite to do about it. But we started this season talking about all the new rule changes, the pitch clock and the stolen bases and everything. And now we end the season talking about the disastrous postseason setup. And the reason why it's disastrous is because you play baseball every single day. <laughs> There's yeah. so many games. There's 
40 spring training games and 162 regular season games. And the reason why you do that is to determine who the best team is and who the best teams are. And those teams are the ones that are supposed to make the playoffs. It's not basketball and it's not hockey where your best teams are going to win in the regular season and pretty much in the postseason, especially in basketball. But in, in baseball, it doesn't work this way because you only have you'd never put your best team out there except for about 15 or 20 percent of the time because it's so reserve heavy you know you if Mm -hmm. if you know justin verlander is your best pitcher he's only pitching 15 to 20 percent of your entire season so the regular season has to matter so what happens here scott what do we get we get Miami, 20 games out, a playoff team. Arizona, 16 games out, a playoff team. Philadelphia, 14 games out. Toronto was 12 out. So baseball's got to do something. Otherwise, what is the point of playing all of these games if these mediocre teams are going to be the ones playing for championships? Let let me do ask you about who's still playing. American League Championship Series, the Battle of Texas, the Rangers against the Houston Astros. Both teams kind of flagged at the end. Um... First game's tomorrow night. Who has the edge? Yeah, exactly. But let's go one other place, Scott. That doesn't mean that what's happening on the field is not exciting. The Philadelphia Phillies are a great team. They're they're a great postseason team that you do not want to play in a short series. They weren't great during the regular season. But, boy, when you play them in a five-game or a seven-game series – my goodness, uh, because they've got stars. Bryce Harper is everything that he was cracked up to be. Yeah. I love this series. Um, I, I love you know, Bryce they, Harper's love for Philadelphia. I just I, Absolutely, he, and he signed that 13-year contract with no opt-out because he wanted to commit to Philly, and he has done everything that was asked of him. And let's also not forget, the Phillies are the defending National League champions. They yeah. – <laughs> Almost won the World Series last year, so it's not like they're a bad team, and they are fun to watch, and they can score. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, but te- the one I te- really want to see, Houston. too, yeah, go ahead. All right. is Texas-Houston. Yeah. Uh, Texas-Houston, you've got Dusty Baker, World Series champion last year, 74 years old, against Bruce Bochy, three t- three-time yeah. World Series champion uh, with San Francisco, two Hall of Famers, Verlander on one side, Scherzer on the other. They were teammates earlier with the Mets this year. Looking forward to both of them. Um, but I'm really looking forward to Houston, really looking forward to Texas. But I kind of want to see a rematch. I want to see Philly, and I want to see Houston one yeah, more time. that'd be fun. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Scott. Israeli defense forces have warned over a million Palestinians to evacuate to southern Gaza, possibly to prepare for a larger ground war. The week-long conflict has been deadly. A shocking Hamas attack killed at least 1,300 Israelis. Thousands more were injured, and Israeli airstrikes and tank fire have killed over 2,200 Palestinians in Gaza and injured nearly 10,000. Gazan officials say roughly 60% of those killed are women and children. Among those dead in Gaza are 12 aid workers with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA. We are joined now by Hani Al-Madun. He is Director of Philanthropy for UNRWA and based right outside of Washington, D.C. Mr. Al-Madun, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Tell us about uh, the evacuation uh, warning. Um, Israel says it's to minimize civilian casualties. The World Health Organization says that uh, 
This is going to be a death sentence for a number of people in Gaza. It's just not possible to undertake that mass evacuation without casualties. What does it seem like to you? Yes, you have this uh, right. It's been a very difficult time for the Palestinians in Gaza. And mind you, I work for UNRWA USA. It's the U.S. affiliate of the U.N. agency that's actually providing the services. So 13 of our colleagues, at least 13 of our colleagues, including a doctor, among the victims of the folks that just lost their lives in this uh, carnage. And I'm sad to say that I have family in Gaza too, so they're yeah. right now hiding under staircases. So this is a very emotional time as we try to rally support for the cause and get people food. As you know, it hasn't been really easy to bring in anything inside Gaza. And UNRWA tells us they have food for about 10 more days in Gaza. And, you know, we'll see how that looks. My mom this morning called me. They can't find bread in Gaza. They're giving the little kids dates. And I understand that, you know, we had some more clarity about collective punishment and about getting aid and humanitarian relief in Ukraine and Russia conflict. I'm not feeling this way right now in this conflict, even from the administration where it hasn't validated that there are Palestinian civilians and it has not said or supported, you know, we're not feeling that the UN flag has been respected anymore. Our colleagues are being bombed, some are being killed, and those are people who are trying to help others. Imagine if you have a UN agency and a UN vest and you don't feel safe. How can you think of the civilians who are caught in Gaza? Let me uh, let me follow up with a few things. Um, electricity and water have been cut off. How are you able to stay in touch? We haven't really. Yesterday was the first day I was able to see my mom on a quick call. There is little electricity. Some people still use solar. There is a few power banks and solar panel. There is maybe like an hour of electricity here or there. If somebody has stored some fuel, then they have electricity for an hour. Most people, if not all people in Gaza now, don't have electricity. I talked to my in-laws who actually evacuated to the supposedly safe zone and they're not feeling very safe. My mom is in the north in Gaza where they're supposed to evacuate. Mm -hmm. She doesn't feel safe enough to go to where the Israelis instructed them to go. And as you remember, those are traumatizing moments for the Palestinians who lived through the 48 and 67. And they know that once they leave, they may not be able to go back to where their homes are. Well, help us understand what that trek would be when you when you say, and we hope, we hope and pray your mother's all right, that your mother is afraid to go. What what? What is so menacing? So, what What does anyone trying to make that, that journey confront? So basically there is uh, three, two main routes and one unofficial one to get out of wherever you need to. There is the, the beach route, which is being bombed right now as we speak from the sea. So that's very dangerous. There is the eastern side and that's there's a lot more of uh, presence because of the Israeli military is literally like five minutes away. So it's very chaotic sea and there are some local authorities there and it's very, it's unconfirmed. If you can go, you can cross to where you need to. I've heard of people who are just taking zigzag roads or farmland to try to get to safety. But it's not an ideal situation for a family, say of 20 people, you know, you first, you don't have fuel for your car, how are you going to get there? And then two, any car large enough, it may be a target, as we've seen of a, a bus that was bombed out yesterday, at least 30 people lost their lives. So people don't feel safe, you know, something like a humanitarian break or a ceasefire for people to move if they need to. But there is a lot of emotions where people say not, I would not leave my house 
because of the trauma and some people who, you know, everybody doesn't want to be attacked. Let's just be honest about this. And I'm not seeing the parade we've had before for Ukraine or, you know, and it's tragedies that happened in Israel too. But I feel like, you know, a lot of people feel abandoned by many people and for them to go to safety, they feel they don't, they don't even know if they're going to make it. And the question is, do you split the family or do you stay together? Do you die together or do you have give somebody a chance to live? A lot of those difficult conversations and what owner was asking for. Yeah, if what owner was asking for right now is to just make sure that we have some relief inside Gaza and we make sure that civilians are protected and we do continue the conversations with the administration about uh, relief and work with UNRWA. We've had a healthy healthy relationship with the administration, but we want to do more of this to support the people in Gaza right now. Honey, I'm not, uh... Al Maktoun is Director of Philanthropy at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. Uh, our best wishes to your family and uh, staff members. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Bye. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. A massive evacuation of northern Gaza is underway as Israeli troops prepare for what's expected to be a land offensive. One week after the brutal Hamas attack on Israel, here in Boston, synagogues are holding services. Yesterday afternoon, we spoke with Elaine Zecher, the senior rabbi of Temple Israel Boston, as she prepared to lead Shabbat services for the congregation. The message to the congregation is very clear. We support Israel in this moment. We support Israel's right to exist. We support Israel's right to defend herself. And we support the citizens of Israel. And that includes Jews, Christians, Muslims, Arabs, Palestinians, Druze. So that's part of our message. The other part of the message is that we are grieving so many people not only know people who are in Israel, but are related to people. And those we're not even related to feel like family. So this is a time of mourning and sadness. And I will also say, so that you don't even need to even ask me, I mourn also for the innocent Palestinian lives. We all mourn for the innocent civilians put in harm's way. What have you been hearing from members of the congregation? Well, I think people feel the fear from what they observed, what they heard, what they unfortunately saw displayed in social media, the murdering of innocent uh, Israelis uh, breaking into their homes is is so awful to recognize the savagery and the brutality that Hamas has exhibited. So that's another that's another sense that people are really feeling that. And that is frightening. It's also frightening because the rise in Jew hatred and anti-Semitism and hatred in general is something that concerns us all. And particularly, we have seen the rise of anti-Semitism and we can't ignore it. I think there's also grave concern because of the innocence, uh, the innocent people, um, innocent Palestinians, innocent Israelis, innocent various nationals who have been affected by this. I understand Temple Israel postponed a trip that had been scheduled for this week to Israel and and that that trip was focused um, 
on interfaith work with Israelis and Palestinians. Can you tell us more about that trip? Yes. And it was it's so sad that they couldn't go because it's exactly when we think about what's the salve for this wound, what's the balm that we that we need? It's to create opportunities for for Jews and Palestinians, for Israelis and Palestinians to be able to sit together, to have a shared experience of learning and understanding and listening. And that was this trip. The trip was to to go into the Palestinian territories, to meet with Palestinians, to be able to hear their stories, to hear their own heartache and their challenges. And that, that possibility ended for now. I'm wondering, with the postponement of the trip, what your hopes or fears are for continuing on that path? First of all, we're not giving up on the trip happening. And that I think it is, a, is an important statement. And we're not giving up on a relationship with Palestinians, with Muslims, with the greater community. We can't. The work is hard. The work is really hard. There is a phrase that we often like to say that you're not obligated to complete the task, but you shouldn't desist from it either. And that is the way that we have to go forward. We have to believe that we will find a way forward. But right now the dead are lying before us and we are grieving and mourning. Elaine Zecker is the senior rabbi at Temple Israel Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. salemstate.edu graduate. After you've seen news alerts all day, it can sometimes be difficult to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app. We'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. And stay with WBUR today for full coverage of the latest developments from Israel and Gaza. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called for protecting civilians in the Gaza Strip and Israel as the Israeli military ordered half of the Palestinian territory's population to evacuate. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor John Goodman explains how he can play both lovable heroes and absolute lunatics. If you're cuddly and adorable, there's got to be a reason why, and it's usually filthy. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for more secrets from the Actors Studio, plus conversations with journalist Bob Woodruff, Jenny Slate, and Stuart Copeland. That's this week's News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Brown Books for Young Readers, publisher of Zillit and Other Important Rhymes, written by Bob Odenkirk and illustrated by his daughter, Erin Odenkirk, a book of poems and nonsense for all ages. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. When Raul Palma's novel A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens opens, Hugo Contreras feels his life is shrunk. He lives in a small bare cell of a Miami apartment after his beloved wife, Millie, has died. He cringes under medical debt with only enough discretionary income to indulge in a single cafecito each week. One day he gets another call from a debt collector, Alexei Ramirez, and is about to hang up when he learns he needs his help. Hugo is a babalao. He spiritually cleanses haunted houses. And if he can banish spirits from Alexei's house, the collector will banish Hugo's debt. Raul Palma, born and raised in Miami, is now on the fiction faculty at Ithaca College, and he told us earlier this week... The idea for the book came when he was in graduate school in Nebraska, overwhelmed by student debt. It was actually, it was winter. And I remember I'd just driven home from campus and the streets were slick, uh, really icy, and got home cold, tired, and and I had a lot of work to do, but began to wonder, how did I get here, (laughs) right? Uh, Mm. Having spent so many years in Miami. And there was a degree Mm. when I began the project of uh, just fondly uh, remembering that warmth and this idea of being so far from home. There is one problem in particular Hugo has with being a Baba Lao, which is he doesn't really believe in it, does he? Yeah, that's right. He He's somebody who has lost faith, has lost belief. Someone who, you know, has a rich past history, and there's certainly trauma in his past. And just based on situations that have happened in his life, he feels almost betrayed by any sense of belief or the possibility of belief. Yeah. So definitely a skeptic. He doesn't believe in spirits, but he he seems to have a very touching belief that Melly's spirit is still with him, doesn't he? That's right, a hunting feeling. So it's hard during the holiday times of the year? Yeah, for Hugo in particular, Hugo and uh, Melly, his late wife, would really kind of celebrate the holidays and and he's still in his closet keeps some of the decorations that they had picked up together yeah. at uh, various pharmacy stores and so yeah it's a it's a particularly sensitive time for Hugo mm. and what are what are the personal debts that um, I don't want to see say say that weigh on him because in many ways they enrich his life too don't they it's interesting because when I started working on this novel just to kind of reflect on my own debts for a moment I often thought of that in a really negative way and there was a degree to which I overlooked the capacity to owe someone or the debts that we have to one another some of the amazing things that that could bring together so for Hugo you know he certainly has personal debts to loved ones to his past to his memories but an interesting thing happens when he's living in Miami his life is kind of flattened to a degree I kind of describe it that uh, every available space for Hugo is occupied by something and he doesn't feel how he can move from one space to another. And in many ways, it's because he feels that something else will be asked of him. Yeah. He feels a debt to his godmother, his madrina, doesn't he? Absolutely. Help us understand what he feels to his godmother, his madrina, and his brother, Victor. As a child, you know, he grows up in uh, Bolivia in a mining town literally on the mountain of Potosi. He's raised by his madrina, a woman who uh, looks after him and works for the the mining collective. 
ultimately, um, when an opportunity is afforded for him to immigrate north to the United States, he ends up leaving her and in many ways forgets some of those memories with her. So there's a sense in which part of these debts for Hugo are being excavated throughout the course of the novel. You suggest in, in the many characters you, you sketch out that debt can be a weight in our lives and our hearts, but also a kind of inspiration, a spur. You know, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I joke sometimes that if I were keeping uh, tally on everything that she would owe me when she's an adult, right, <laughs> the list would be insurmountable. And that the, the beauty there is that in, in our relationship, we don't do that. We're not keeping a tab. You know, we, we really lean into just the, the beauty of what it is to, to know that you owe somebody something profound that really can't be repaid. And for Hugo, you know, he's certainly crushed by his debts at the start of the novel. Some of those debts that really fall into this negative, I try to position them in a way where Hugo also tries to find uh, the beauty in what it is to, to have a bond with someone founded on that kind of foundation of that I found myself thinking through the course of your novel that, you know, I, we think of haunting as something, well, haunting, to be avoided. But by the end of your novel, I was thinking, I don't know, maybe we should welcome it. Yeah, it's such an interesting thought. You know, a city, a city like Miami, I remember growing up in Miami, it wasn't immediately clear to me just how complex the city's own history, its politics are. Perhaps there were things hiding in plain sight that were just invisible to me. And what the haunting uh, allows for is that these things that are invisible or hidden in plain sight begin to exert pressure and they, they, they begin to ask, why don't you look at me, right? Why don't you pay attention to me, right? There's something hidden here and there's something worth looking at a lot more closely. Raul Palma's novel, A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thank you for having me. NPR continues to bring you news and analysis about the war between Israel and Hamas. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Ayesha, we'll have the latest on the situation in Gaza, where a ground evasion is expected soon, where more than a million people have been told by the Israeli military to evacuate to the south. Also, uh, some insight on Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, how he has positioned himself and his depth of support. You can hear those conversations tomorrow morning on your radio, your phone, or your smart speaker. And to see much more of NPR's coverage of the war, go to npr.org slash Updates. The pipe organ. No harmonica, now is it? It can be as big as a bus, a building, and produce a massive sound. Let us introduce Michael Barone, host and founder of a weekly show dedicated to organ music, Pipe Dreams. It's produced by Minnesota Public Radio and heard across the country. The program is now celebrating 40 years on the air. Michael Barone, thanks so much for being with us. Scott, it is my pleasure. 40 years, mercy. I mean, forgive me, 40 years ago, did anybody ever say to you, listen, a show about pipe organ music, not even for public radio. It's something I never imagined would be ongoing. And in fact, we started 
with just a, a series of 14 programs that were offered up nationally back in 1982 with no plan for continuation. And one thing led to another, and uh, here we are. Wow. What, what do you think is so captivating, uh, intriguing about the pipe organ? What keeps people going and tuned in? Well, I would imagine that the organ is uh, kind of a mythical beast. It's been around for ages and ages. It was invented before Christ, and its involvement with the church is a, a relatively recent uh, encounter. But just the term organ it derives from the Greek organon, which means tool. And I like to think of the organ as a tool, which can be applied to pretty much any sort of music than, that one would imagine. And, of course, you can go from a simple organ of only one set of pipes to monstrous instruments that have thousands and thousands. Mm. We want to listen to something now that was, I am told, on your very first broadcast of Pipe Dreams. McNeil Robinson's Oh, I Had a Thousand Voices. You remember this? Yeah, there were actually more than 2,000 voices waiting to respond. Uh, Neil was improvising an introduction to the first hymn opening the inaugural convocation of the American Guild of Organists National Convention held in the Twin Cities in 1980. It's fantastic to set a room alive with the sound of an organ and then have that sound responded to by 2,000 church musicians who know what to do. You play yourself, right? I was trained as an organist. I was for maybe 13 years a church organist. I haven't been serious about performing since about 1980, and uh, I like to say I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> well, I'm afraid there are lots of people that think of pipe organs, and it's you know it's just Lurch playing for the Adams family, and maybe ballpark organists, and of course cathedrals. But they're all over, aren't they? Well, churches are in a way the primary home for the instruments in our culture today, though the original organs in Roman Colosseums probably served the same function that the electronic organs in baseball stadiums do today to rouse the crowd. I don't know whether they had that tune in mind back then, but uh, oh, yeah. that's, that's... For the centurions? Yeah, perhaps not. Right. Uh, but certainly in the industrial period in England, in the latter part of the 19th century, organs were installed in great public spaces in the town halls. And that tradition carried on in this country. And you'll find still in some civic spaces in the United States, large pipe organs. Probably the largest civic space and the largest pipe organ is in Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City. It is rivaled only by an instrument at what used to be the Wanamaker Department Store, oh, yeah. uh, now Macy's in downtown Philadelphia. And it's played twice a day, Monday through Saturday, for the entertainment, the enlightenment, the surprise of whoever happens to be in shopping for a new blouse or a pair of shoes. 
Is that the fugue uh, of get to the cash register with your pair of socks because we're about to close? No, this is a remarkable piece. It's the opening movement of a symphony that the great French virtuoso and improviser Marcel Dupre played on this very organ. He was given some themes which he put together in kind of a, a life of Christ scenario so that you have this opening movement which is uh, very restless and disturbed, which is uh, the world awaiting the Savior. And then there's a Christmas movement and a crucifixion movement and a resurrection movement. I, uh, I want us to hear some of your own mastery. Uh, <laughs> recently held a, a, a 40, celebrate 40 years concert at Bethel University. You played a little list. Oh, so beautifully done. What's it like to fill the air with that? It's it's a little unnerving if you haven't performed in public for quite a while and uh, have forgotten how to count. Uh, fortunately, Mr. List does not write a very complex part for the organ in this wonderful little symphonic poem that I dare say most people don't know. It's called the Hundenschlacht, or the Battle of the Huns, and it depicts a horrific encounter Back in 700 A.D., when the, the Huns and the Christians are in mortal conflict. Michael, why has pipe dreams lasted so long, do you think? <laughs> uh, because there are a number of stations that continue to uh, choose to offer it to their listeners. But what continues to enthrall about the music, do you think? Well, I think that it is so varied and it touches upon so many different emotional possibilities. Um, it is colorful, it is dynamic, it is exciting, it is uh, soothing. It is everything that you want music to be if you will just give it half a chance. Uh, most discover that if they know nothing about the organ and happen to be somewhere where one is being played, watching the organist is fascinating. And listening to the power of the instruments is astonishing. And all, you know, at the control of one simple peasant, as it were. <laughs> Michael Barone is the host of Minnesota Public Radio's Pipe Dreams. Michael, congratulations. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, I hope another 40 are ahead for you. Thank you, Scott. And by the way, you can find the full archives of Pipe Dreams programs at pipedreams.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today and tomorrow, highs both days in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series with Grupo Corpo, Brazilian contemporary dance at the Box Center, Schubert Theater, October 28th and 29th, celebrityseries.org. Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door, waldenlocalmeat.com. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing middle and high schoolers through human-centered design, open house October 19th. NEIacademy.org. I'm Scott Tong. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza continues, the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza is worsening. Israeli leaders look for ways to secure their borders and increase security for their citizens. Perspectives and reporting from all sides next time and here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.